Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thank you for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monta Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. Today we're going to be looking at part two of a short series on salvation. As was stated in the previous radio program, the debate over how a person is saved can often be intense. It's not a simple matter of doctrine or all opinions being equally valid, but one that cuts to the core of Christianity. What does it mean to believe, to trust, to obey, to have unflappable faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to model your life in such a way that you are saved. What we say about salvation is going to affect some people in ways that no other topic will, but its importance is paramount. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and begin here in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. We'll stop there and make a comment here. Paul links the preaching and reception of the gospel message to salvation, that what you believe about Jesus actually affects whether you're saved or not. If that message is presented in a way that's skewed, or that misinforms people, or if it's presented in a way that has some ulterior motive, that that leads the hearer down a path away from Jesus Christ and the pure message of the gospel, then, then if there's anything wrong with the message, it will impact the hearers. It'll impact those who receive the message as well. By which also you're saved, he says in verse 2, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And if we hear the unadulterated word of God, if we hear the pure message of the gospel, the way that it is meant to be presented, the way that the Bible presents it, the way that Paul, Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles would have presented it in the first century, if we hear it in a pure way and we receive it with a pure heart, if we model our lives after it, we will be saved. But we have to hold fast to the word which was preached to us. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul saw the gospel as first importance. That, that the gospel was the most important thing that he could teach anybody, that he could show anybody. And he delivered it as of first importance. He says here that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised up on the third day according to the scriptures. And he goes on to explain, beginning in verse 5, that he appeared to witnesses after his resurrection. Now, according to Paul, this message is of utmost importance. And to argue one way or the other is going to have eternal consequences. 
So what I want to do with our second radio program today in this short series is to address some of the most common scriptures that are thrown back and forth in the debate over salvation in particular. Are we saved by faith alone, as many people assert? Are we saved by works alone, as other people would assert? Or is there a third alternative where faith and works are not pitted against each other, as if they're mutually exclusive ideas? Let's start in Acts chapter 2. So have your Bibles open to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right into Acts chapter 2. Now, the Apostle Peter, as well as the other Apostles, have been preaching on the day of Pentecost. They have presented the message of the gospel, that their listeners were lost in their sins and needed something. Now, in verse 37, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the Apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? That's the best question you can ask in response to the gospel. When you're presented with the idea that Jesus came to this world as a human being, flesh and blood, that he died on a cross and was buried, and that he was raised up by the power of God to defeat sin and death, your next question should be, well, what do I need to do in response to that? Given such an incredible message, what do I need to do? And here's Peter's response that echoes today. It is as true today as it was almost 2,000 years ago when it was first presented. Peter said to them in Acts 2 verse 38, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, does he ever mention belief there? Well, I don't read it anywhere. But you assume belief, don't you? You assume that if people have heard the message of the gospel, that they have believed the message. That if you're going to sit there and say, brethren, what shall we do? If you are pierced to the heart and you want to know what the next step in the process is, I assume that you've believed the message. I assume that you're no longer the skeptic, the unbeliever. That's what I assume. So belief is assumed here in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So isn't it interesting that these people did believe the message, they heard Peter preach, and they were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. They were affected by it. They believed what Peter was saying, but they weren't saved yet. They weren't saved because they had to repent of their sins. They had to put a life of sin behind them and resolve to live different. They had to resolve to change their ways to go from being sinners to saints, to repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. Not because of the forgiveness of your sins, as some people might assert, but the Greek word eis means unto, in order to. So that you can have forgiveness of sins, you must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, from the most objective position possible, the teaching here is that repentance and baptism are both absolutely necessary to obtain God's mercy and the forgiveness of sins. Now, when that statement doesn't jive with somebody's preconceived ideas, perhaps the tradition they come from religiously or the creed book from their denomination, people will come up with a lot of ways of arguing Acts 2 verse 38 either out of existence or at least out of relevance. One of the ways that some people try to argue away Acts 2 verse 38 is to say that this particular verse is just either poorly translated or mistranslated altogether. 
They would like the verse to read, Repent for the forgiveness of your sins and let each of you be baptized, as if baptism is something you do after you've already been forgiven. That baptism is some kind of a symbol of the forgiveness that's already come into your life. Or perhaps it's the outward sign of an inward grace that has already touched your soul. But you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to subscribe to any doctrine that hinges on the Bible being mistranslated. To me, that, that's not a very strong argument to make. Especially given the fact that you can open up any English translation from New American Standard, New King James Version, English Standard Version, and they are all translated in a similar way, that you must repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But then that word for, let's talk about that one a little bit more closely. In the Greek, that's eis, and people try to argue that it means because and not in order to obtain. However, the Greek word that's translated here commonly and predominantly means unto or in order to do something. Of the 1,773 occurrences of the Greek word eis in the New Testament, only four times does the context require that it means because of. In addition, if we argue that the expression for the forgiveness of sins means because you've already been forgiven, then is that true of all the uses of that phrase? For example, Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins in Matthew 26, verse 28. So did our Lord shed his blood and die because our sins were already forgiven? Or did he shed his blood so that our sins could be forgiven? Acts chapter 3 verse 19 is the same way. Repent therefore and return that, that's eis right there, that your sins may be wiped away. In order for your sins to be wiped away, you must repent and return to God. It makes no sense to command people to repent of their sins because their sins are already wiped away. If that's true, then repentance shouldn't even be required. But the Bible teaches that repentance is prior to salvation. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10 illustrates this one. Go to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. That you have to repent first. And the repentance that is according to the will of God leads to salvation. It doesn't come from salvation or come after salvation. Repentance leads to salvation, which matches up perfectly with Acts 2 verse 38 already. And we need to carefully consider the context of Acts 2 verse 38. If these people were saved at the moment of belief and were forgiven of their sins prior to baptism, then why does Peter keep exhorting them in verse 40 to be saved from this perverse generation? Why is he telling people who are already saved because of belief to be saved? Why would one need to be saved if he was already saved? And of course, also consider verse 41 of the same context in which it is made clear still that it was not until people had received the word, that is, they had heard the word, accepted it, and obeyed it. It was only after they had received the word and were baptized that the Holy Spirit says that souls were added to the number of those who were being saved. Next, turn to Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For you are all sons through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This verse is often written off by faith-only supporters who argue that the baptism mentioned here isn't really water baptism, which, by the way, isn't really a term that you find in the New Testament. It is, instead, the spiritual baptism of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The faith-only proponent's inability to understand the intimate relationship between faith and baptism blinds him to the wonderful reconciliation of the two in this very verse. When faith works hand-in-hand with baptism, when baptism is seen as an expression of our faith and not a meritorious work or a sacred ritual that we go through, we see that the two are not in competition with each other. There's, There's no issue reconciling the two of them. We're sons through faith, and we become sons through faith by putting on Christ in the act of baptism. And the act of baptism isn't something I do to myself. The act of baptism is something that God does to me. He washes me, as we'll see in a verse from Titus here in just a few minutes. Now notice one other point from this verse, that there's no other way to clothe ourselves with Christ. There's no other way but baptism. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. I guess my question is, if baptism isn't necessary for salvation then can you be saved without being clothed in Christ? Not only that, but how is it defensible to say that this baptism isn't water baptism, when it's baptism in water that's commanded of us, Acts chapter 10, verses 47 and 48. And it's water baptism that saves us, Mark 16, verse 16. And it's water baptism that makes us disciples, Matthew 28, verse 19. Or is it just more convenient to take every single verse on baptism and say there's no water in it? We're clearly talking about baptism in water when we mention anything related to clothing ourselves with Christ or putting him on. Acts 2 verse 38, in the name of Jesus Christ, buried with him in baptism, Colossians 2 verse 12, Romans 6 verses 3 through 4, baptized into Christ and buried with him in baptism. So baptism brings us into Christ or into his body according to 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. But if we're saved before baptism by faith alone, then what does baptism really do? I think that Galatians 3, this passage forces the faith alone proponent to confront the contradictory statement that they're saved but not clothed in Christ. How can you be saved without clothing yourself in Christ? But let's go back to that 1 Corinthians 12 reference. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, it says, For by one Spirit you are all baptized into one body. It is here contended that the baptism that puts us into the body of Christ is just Holy Spirit baptism. And yet, the passage isn't talking about being baptized into the Spirit. It's saying, by one Spirit, by one Spirit, you were all baptized or through the agency of the Spirit. Throughout the gospel message, the Spirit tells us that we need to be baptized, to be saved, to be a part of the body of Christ. Once again, then, the faith-only proponent is confronted with a problem. He's claiming that he's saved before baptism by faith alone, but you're not a part of the body. Because baptism puts you into the body of Christ. How can you then be saved, but not be a part of the body of Christ? But next we go to John 3 and verse 5. 
Some believe the water in this following passage is a figurative expression. For the word of God, that is. But I wonder what the verse actually says. John 3, verse 5. Remember, this is in the context of a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus, who was an expert in the law. He came to him late at night to ask him a few questions, maybe to confirm in his mind what he really thought about this Jesus of Nazareth character. They begin to talk about being born again, and Jesus emphasizes to Nicodemus the importance, really the necessity, of being born again, that if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So he has this to say within that context in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So is it the baptism into water that represents the word here? Or is it the spirit? More often than anything else, the word is associated intimately with the Spirit. 1 Peter 1.23, James 1 verse 18, Ephesians 6 and verse 17. Ephesians 6.17 even states the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So if you're going to look at John 3 verse 5 and see the word of God anywhere, of being baptized in the word of God, of being uh, brought deep into the word of God to understand it, really it's the Spirit part, being baptized by the Spirit, that seems more like the Word of God there. Consider also Ephesians 5, verse 26, which states that Jesus Christ sanctifies us by the washing of water with the Word. Faith that is produced by the hearing of the Word leads us to be baptized. They go hand in hand. Again, they're not in conflict with each other. Faith and baptism are not exclusive of each other. But next we get to Titus chapter 3. And let's begin in Titus 3, verses 3 through 5. Really great passage here. Titus 3, 3 through 5. For we also all were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Now, where does Paul put all the emphasis here. Who gets all the credit? Did we save ourselves? Did we earn salvation in any way? Did we force ourselves into the kingdom of God? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This verse is sometimes used to show that it's not our deeds that save us, but God's grace working through faith. However, we're also introduced to a very powerful lesson when we consider the meaning of baptism. While it must be admitted without hesitation that our meritorious deeds do not save us, we need to realize something about baptism that I think a lot of faith-only proponents fail to see. Baptism is not a work that we do of ourselves. Baptism is not a meritorious work. Contrary to common misconception, it's not a deed that we perform that deserves merit or recognition. And what I'm saying by that is that I do nothing in baptism. I do nothing in baptism. My willingness to go into a baptistry or to a creek or someone's pool in the backyard... My willingness to get dunked in water is not some kind of like magic ritual that I can do to save myself. 
It's not a deed that I perform. Paul gives all the credit to God according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. He saved us. It is God who is doing the work in baptism, not us. Baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation, not because it's something we do to earn salvation, but because it is God working on us and washing us. Baptism is God's act of taking a filthy garment and throwing it into the laundry to be cleaned. Baptism is not me taking my soul into my own hands, but handing my soul over to God to be cleansed by Him. When we're baptized, we give ourselves over to God by faith to do the merciful work of forgiveness. So baptism is most definitely a work, but it's not my work. Now, all of this has been leading up to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It is often the hallmark verse for the supporter of salvation by faith alone. It says, therefore, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And immediately we hear people clamor to this verse, citing it as the definitive answer to the debate. However, there's nothing that we should fear about this verse because it actually supports the proponent of faith and baptism working together for salvation. Consider a few things about it here. The phrase, for by grace you have been saved. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. There's no deed that makes us worthy of heaven. It is only by God's mercy that any of us have hope in eternal salvation. But does this mean that we're not expected to do something to receive that grace? Does this mean that salvation is an entirely passive thing to where I don't even put myself in a position to receive it, but God just thrusts it upon me? Now, perhaps to the diehard Calvinist, that would be true, but that's a lesson for another day. I would contend that our obedience to the commandments of the gospel are not, in fact, works that we do to save ourselves. But our obedience to the commandments of the gospel, our obedience itself, is the expression of our faith. It is by faith, it is through faith, it is because of our faith that we act upon the gospel call for us to be saved. God offers us something that we can never earn and we can never deserve, but we have to put ourselves in a position to receive it. I can't earn it, but I do have to open up my hands to receive it. I can't earn it, but God does expect me to put myself in a position to accept the free gift of salvation. It is not of ourselves, he says in Ephesians 2. That is that salvation has arrived at outside of ourselves. We have salvation done to us, almost like a drive-through car wash. Now, you have to drive there to use it. You have to follow the rules. You have to stay on the track. But once you're on that track, you take your hands off the steering wheel. You put the car in neutral. You don't touch the brake. You don't touch the gas. You let the drive-through car wash do what it does. And you accept the cleansing that happens. You're not pushing the car through. You're not pushing the pedal. You're not steering. But in order to be cleansed, you did have to get there. You did have to put yourself in a position to receive the cleansing. In anything, whether it's the car wash or obedience to God and salvation, there are rules to be followed. There's a track to stay on. There's regulations. 
It's not a result of works, he says. Salvation comes through the mercy of God, and not because we earn it. But this cannot exclude works of every kind, because even faith itself is a work, John 6.29, like we looked at last week. In the context of Ephesians 2, Paul is saying that we cannot be saved by works of the law, works of merit. And my friends, baptism is not a work of merit, as we have clearly seen already from other passages. Now, I know we've got to bring this radio program to a close for the sake of time, but I want to offer you an invitation that if there's anything else you want to study along these lines, that if there's anything we've looked at in our program today that you're curious about, if there's other passages of Scripture that you want to consider together, then please reach out to Monte Vista, and we would love to sit down and present the simple truth of God's gospel to you. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montevistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monte Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monte Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montevistacoc.com. Amen.